Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka, and Figilirungwati. In our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shan at the Sawa, rebels threaten to disrupt presidential election in Somalia. Burundi marks anniversary of Unity Charter adoption and Tanzania intensifies its war on drugs. In economics news, Nigerians take to the streets to protest against economic policy. And in sports news, Russia unlikely to be readmitted back into athletics before November. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussa. Presidential candidates in Somalia have rounded off campaigning with an unprecedented televised debate. Wednesday's presidential vote is part of the rebuilding effort in Somalia, which was shattered by more than two decades of conflict. An insurgency by al-Shabaab Islamist militants submerged plans for each adult to have a vote. So Somalia's 300 members of parliament will instead vote on the next president. Somalia is one of seven majority Muslim nations whose citizens were barred from traveling to America under Donald Trump's executive order. Chadian President Idris Deby has warned that Africa's Sahel region risks becoming a space for terrorists unless immediate coordinated action is taken. He was speaking as the area leaders gather for security talks in the Malian capital, Bamako. The presidents of Chad, Burkina Faso, Mali, Mauritania and Niger met to discuss the region's security situation, where attacks mounted by jihadists and armed groups are on the rise and increasingly targeting civilians. Around 3,500 French troops are currently stationed in the Sahel with a mandate to secure the vast, largely desert area. In the face of an increasingly nimble array of Islamist groups, some aligned with al-Qaeda. The fate of the suspended executive order that U.S. President Donald Trump signed temporarily banning refugees and the citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries from entering America could be decided by an appeals court. A Seattle-based federal judge on Friday issued a nationwide temporary restraining order blocking the execution act action which the Justice Department immediately appealed. By a late afternoon deadline, the government must defend the order in the Ninth U.S. Circuit of Appeals in San Francisco after the court refused to block the lower judge's decision, suspending the ban's implementation at the weekend. Sharon Brass Peace reports. 
The government has until around 1 a.m. Central African time on Tuesday to submit additional legal explanations, or what they call briefs, to the Court of Appeals to justify the controversial ban that created chaos around the nation's airports, even for travelers with valid legal entry permits into the United States. Washington State on the West Coast became the first state to challenge the constitutionality of the executive order and won a significant reprieve in Seattle on Friday. Friday. Support for the Washington filing now includes the states of Hawaii and Minnesota and close to 100 technology companies who filed briefs arguing that the executive order harms innovation and economic growth. The United Nations says it's ready to help South Sudan address the issue of former opposition fighters who fled the country for neighboring DRC in the wake of deadly violence last July. The United Nations Special Envoy for the Great Lakes Region, Sayed Jinnit, addressed reporters in the capital, Juba. South Sudan, the world's youngest nation, has been rocked by what the UN Humanitarian Office, or CHAR, has described as multiple and interlocking threats, including armed conflict and intercommunal violence, as well as economic decline. Jeanette raises the issue of former opposition fighters located in the DRC. The government of the DRC uh, has demanded the United Nations to help in relocating them outside the region, but the government has also decided on amnesty. We want to have the views of the government of the South Sudan, and we as a UN, we stand ready to help in uh, addressing this issue, relocating them, either returning to South Sudan or relocating in uh, neighboring countries, but in a manner that is acceptable to all, but in a manner that can in any way sustain and support stability and uh, peace in this country and also strengthen relations between South Sudan and its neighbors. And finally, family, friends, the rugby fraternity, as well as government officials, are all paying tribute to South African rugby legend Joost van der Westhuizen. He died at the age of 45 after losing a battle with motor neuron disease on Monday. Van der Westhuizen was diagnosed with the disease in 2011. Meanwhile, President Jacob Zuma has expressed his sadness at his death. Presidential spokesperson Bongani Humulunga. President Zuma has said South Africa has lost an image and then one of the best rugby players that this country has produced. On behalf of our government and the people of South Africa, the president has extended his condolences to his family. The president has also thanked the nation for keeping Mr. Van Vesthuizen in their thoughts and prayers. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And Somalia is set to hold presidential elections on Wednesday despite threats from Al-Shabaab militants that they will carry out a major attack. The threat has forced the Somali government to shift the election venue from a location in the capital, Mogadishu, to an undisclosed place inside the country's international airport. Eighteen candidates are vying for the presidential seat. James Mangula has more. Presidential election in Somalia was expected to be held at the Mogadishu Police Academy. 
but due to a threat from al-Shabaab militants that they were preparing to disrupt the holding of the electoral process, the Somali government has now shifted the venue from the police academy to a location inside the country's international airport. The election takes place on Wednesday the 8th of February under tight security provided by members of the African Union's Amisom forces. 18 candidates are politically fighting for the presidential post with the incumbent President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud hoping that he will be re-elected to again lead the people of Somalia. Mogadishu International Airport is located in the southern part of the capital Mogadishu. The airport is also used by the African Union troops as its headquarters. Several foreign embassies are also housed at the airport under tight security. Speaking to local and international journalists in the capital Mogadishu, Somalia's Foreign Affairs Minister Abdisalam Hadie Omar confirmed that preparations for the presidential election have been completed. The Somali people are waiting and ready for this process to complete. The Somali leaders are committed in doing it, and the only game in town is the electoral process. As has been said at the outset, 18 candidates are contesting the presidency. Mohamed Abdirizak is one of them. Rizaka admits that Mogadishu has been gripped by insecurity due to fresh threats by al-Shabaab militants to unleash attacks at the venue of the presidential election and other places. Security, if anything, has uh, backtracked. Security has worsened. All major hotels in Mogadishu have been attacked. We are up to 18 members of the parliament killed. We have generals killed. We have ministers killed. We have thousands of Somalis, innocent people killed. One of Somalia's presidential contestants, Mohamed Abdurizak, says with the presidential election expected to be completed Wednesday, there is urgent need for the people of Somalia to reconcile. The need for real reconciliation among Somalis. Real reconciliation has never really taken place in Somalia. The presidential election is taking place at a time when al-Shabaab militants are threatening to carry out attacks and disrupt the electoral process. Al-Shabaab militants have been a thorn in the flesh of the Somali government for more than four years and remain dangerous to the ordinary citizens of Somalia as they continue to unleash deadly intermittent attacks. Razak thinks that time has come for Somalia to have a national military force to stop al-Shabaab attacks once and for all. What we need to do is to have a united national force that can defend Somalia and its territory and its people against its enemies, including al-Shabaab. That was Mohamed Abdurizak, one of the 18 presidential candidates in Somalia. Presidential elections take place in the troubled Horn of Africa nation, on Wednesday, the 8th of February. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. 
Burundi on Monday marked the 26th anniversary of the adoption of the Unity Charter, despite some worries over ethnic differences in the country. Ceremonies took place in major towns in Burundi's provinces, and Burundian President Pien Kurunziza were in the northeastern province of Muyinga for the celebration. By adopting the Unity Charter in 1991, the three main ethnic groups in Burundi Hutus, Tutsis and Twas accepted to live in harmony and avoid confrontations. Yet on Burundi streets, opinions on the unity progress 26 years after the charter adoption seem to be mixed. Bernard Bankukira has more from Bujumbura. 26 years are over since the Burundians adopted the Charter for National Unity, a charter theoretically adopted on February 5, 1991, to end ethnic mistrust among the ethnic groups composing the makeup of Burundi particularly between the two main ethnic groups, Hutus and Tutsis, whose conflict that rose since independence has deeply affected the country's welfare. Since its adoption, the charter became one of the governing texts of Burundi. Every president taking his oath must pledge to safeguard the charter of the national unity alongside the constitution. However, despite the charter to be adopted on over 90% of votes, it did not prevent Burundi to fall into a violent ethnic civil war between Hutus and Tutsis two years later after the assassination of the first democratically elected president on October 21, 1993. The question for many is to know whether the content of the adopted text meant really what was in the minds of Burundians. Though it is marked every year, it remained meaningless in an ethnically torn country like Burundi. Hassan Nirora and Moses Azerimana are two journalists working in Burundi. For them, the charter did not help Burundians in their problems. Well, it's true that Burundians are marking the 26th anniversary of the adoption of the Unity Charter. But can we say really that uh, the Unity Charter has created more cohesion amongst Burundians? I doubt. Because, you know, two two years later, in 1993, uh, there was a crisis, a big crisis that occurred after the assassination of President Melchior Ndadaye. And there were clashes, confrontations between Hutus and Tutsis. And several hundreds of thousands of people were killed while others were forced into exile. Now, can we say that the charter really helped Burundians? I really doubt. I really doubt because I think the charter didn't touch problem, the root problem, which is between Hutus and Tutsis. Even today, well, we've been marking anniversaries of the adoption of the Unity Charter, but problems are still there. The evidence of this is when... Nkurunziza was bidding for the third term uh, in April 2015. Remember that Nkurunziza and his allies were saying that the Tutsis are the ones who are behind the protests, which means that it's the Tutsis who really don't Hutus to be promoted. This shows that unity is not there. Well, I think that it haven't yet helped Burundians because uh, you can even see what has been happening for, um, since the charter was signed. So a good example is from the 2015 when the political crisis erupted after the cabinet president Pierre Kuziza ran for a third controversial third term in the office. So you can see there have been uh, more fears and concerns about the genocide and whatever. This undermined the unity, you know. Um, the, if you Burundi were still united and respected this charter, I mean, 
this could be not been happening. And uh, uh, there have been some allegations of uh, one of the ethnic group was targeted. Or, uh, so um, personally, I feel like uh, it's not really, really considered to be that helpful. The conflicts between Hutus and Tutsis broke out over power conquests. For so many years, Hutus tried to gain power, which was in the hands of Tutsis, who struggled to maintain it. In 2000, the Russia Peace and Reconciliation Agreement, a power share was agreed between the two ethnic groups. Arrangements made allowed the country to undergo a relative calm that lasted for 10 years till the country fell into another political crisis that broke out in April 2015 when the ruling party declared President Kurunziza as its flag-bearer in the controversial presidential polls of July 25th. For Hassan Nirola and Moses Sazermana, only respect, recognition of history and forgiveness will allow Burundians to be free from ethnic strife. What I recommend is that people should respect each other. Hutus are there, Tutsis are there. They should respect each other and know that a Hutu needs to live in harmony, to live well, to earn his living, as well as a Tutsi. So they have to respect each other. And also, as we have the national constitution based on the Arusha Agreement, people should also respect the shares. 50% percent in security and defense institutions as well as 64 Hutus and 44 Tutsis in other institutions. So this should be respected and if this is respected I hope Burundians will be able to live in harmony regardless of their ethnic backgrounds. The charter was meant to abolish ethnic discriminations, offer equal opportunities for all and give a mandate for the government to write a new constitution whose draft was adopted the year after, to allow the first Hutu president to be elected in June 1993. Though it remained meaningless in the eyes of many for many years, the charter remains an opportunity for leaders to make appeals to the population to pledge loyalty to their country and militate for national cohesion. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira, reporting from Bujumbura. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tanzania's President John Magufuli has told security forces on Monday to crack down on the drugs trade and said no one should be spared even if they are top politicians or their relatives. Magufuli, nicknamed the bulldozer for the way he pushes through projects, has launched a drive against corruption, tax evasion and poaching since taking office office in 2015. His new drive against drugs reflects growing international concern that East Africa is being used by traffickers. Our reporter Gabriel Zakaria has more from Dar es Salaam. Since Friday last week, Dar es Salaam residents were shocked from the regional commissioner of Dar es Salaam report that shows 17 police officers and seven movie stars linked to the illicit trade. The list includes prominent artist Vanessa Mde and Itunda Sabasita alias video Queen, former Miss Tanzania of 2006 Wema Sepetu. Others that he mentioned are Khalid Mohammed aka TID, Winifrida Josephad, Rachel, Harry Samia, Mr. Blue, Hamidu Chambuso, Dogo Hamidu and Rashid Makwiro aka Chidi Benzi. Early Monday morning at the State House of Dar es Salaam, during a inaugural ceremony of a new chief of Tanzania's Defense Force, President Imagu Fuli commended the great job done by the Inspector General of Police, IGP Ernest Imangu, to suspend the accused policemen who were mentioned in a statement of narcotic traffickers. Mr. President directed the IGP and the other state organs to work as a team to fight against the drugs business and all the suspects should be taken to court to answer charges against them. I'm very disappointed when I see cases related to nicotic or drugs abuse are taking too long before judgment. I would like to see all cases related to illicit trade ruled out in a very short period. His case took a long time without any judgment. We have now to enforce our laws. The regional commissioner Paul Makonda, who has made a name in his unorthodox means of delivering service and justice since he was promoted to the role by President John Magufuli, says he was taking the bull by its horns as the chairman of the Dar es Salaam Regional Security Committee. He adds that drugs abuse was destroying the youth. With a deep and unbelievable scenario, I personally conducted a night patrol and what I found there has shocked me. It was a misery. I witnessed the people doing narcotic trade with no fears at all. Locals and newcomers are doing this kind of business at an open area and even some of our police security know this but no action taken to stop this. However, I urged the owners of the houses which are running this business to meet me at the police station. Akram Adams is a human rights, criminal law and corporate law in Tanzania who says the move to fight against drugs abuse requires efforts from the whole community. The thing which are being done is legally done right now and uh, the, the procedure being followed and there is nothing, there's nothing, there's no problem of, 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 of the issue of arresting people. 
and the issue of regional commissioner taking the step is actually in the ambit of the law. Uh, the regional commissioner is being allowed to do that as as a chairman of of, of keeping the security of its region, to keeping the spirit of its region. Actually, this mandate as being the the, the, the mandate of of the regional commissioner is being provided under the law, the Regional and Administration Act of 1997, uh, the law number number 19. The mentioned seven celebrities were questioned on weekend at the central police station in Dar es Salaam before two of them taken to court on Monday. The RSC did not say if the celebrities were directly involved in drug trafficking or they were just abusers. Lawyer Akram Adams again. No one is above the law and if the action must be taken, it must be taken. For example, if you become a suspect, they are not actually criminals, but they are being suspected to conduct that kind of, 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 of action. Now, the suspicion does not create someone being to, to become a criminal. That's why these are being done and no one is above the law. And you, you cannot arrest a person or call a person to the police. Privately, that is not a private matter. When it comes to criminal, it, it becomes a public matter. That's why when they are calling, no one can, can, can call you in secret. It's not a secret. It's a public matter. That's why you are being called and you are being only suspected and you cannot you cannot now come with a base you do not have a base or to claim against you are only being suspected actually there's no legal claim you have against the police or against the, the, the administration mr makonda claimed that people on the list have been mentioned by different people on the use and selling of drugs and that's enough to use them for further investigation and get more people who are involved in what appears to make Dar es Salaam a hotbed of drug criminals, the RSA revealed more names of suspects who are linked to the illegal business that has now attracted members from the crucial security apparatus who extort cash to protect the barons. According to the RSC, the three police officers who are in the network of drug kingpings made 1 billion Tanzanian shillings from the illegal trade in the past two weeks. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. The UN mission in Afghanistan, UNAMAS, says civilian casualties in Afghanistan reached record levels last year. The figure of 11,418 conflict-related casualties for 2016 includes a two-thirds increase in those killed or maimed by so-called unexploded remnants of war, such as landmines, the vast majority of which were children. The UN called on all parties to the conflict, including extremist Taliban fighters who were responsible for nearly two-thirds of casualties to stop targeting civilian areas, such as schools and mosques. More details from Hamid Halima in the Afghan capital, Kabul. UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, UNAMA, reported the highest civilian casualties in a single year in its annual report on protection of civilians in armed conflict. Tadamichi Yamamoto, the UN Secretary General Special Representative for Afghanistan, said at a press conference in Kabul that UNAMA documented last year more than 11,000 conflict-related civilian casualties. UNAMA documented 11,418 civilian casualties, an overall 
3% increase compared to the previous record high documented in 2015. According to the report, anti-government elements continue to be responsible for most of the casualties. In terms of tactics, ground engagements cause the biggest harm. Daniel Bell, UNAMA Human Rights Director, explains. UNAMA attributed 61% of civilian casualties to anti-government elements, 24% to pro-government forces, and 10% were attributed to ground engagements between pro-government forces and anti-government elements in which attribution could not be attributed to one specific party. The remaining 5% resulted mainly from unattributed explosive remnants of war. Ground engagements remained the leading cause of civilian casualties, followed by improvised explosive devices or IEDs, suicide and complex attacks, targeted killings, explosive remnants of war, and aerial operations. Ms. Bell added that child casualties increased by 24% from 2015, the highest number of child casualties recorded by UNAMA in a single year. The disproportionate rise in child casualties resulted mainly from an overall 66% increase in casualties from unexploded remnants of war. 86% of those victims were children. Um, and ground engagement and unexploded ordnance remain the leading cause of child casualties. Mr. Yamamoto, the UN envoy for Afghanistan, called on all parties to the conflict to take concrete measures for civilian protection. I must remind actors that such attacks, in particular the intentional killings of civilians during armed conflict, are war crime. I urge all parties to the conflict to abide by their expressed commitments and take concrete steps to stop the preventable harm. What they must do is clear. Cease fighting in civilian populated areas and, and stop using, using civilian space, such as schools, hospitals and mosques for military objectives. UNAMA is mandated by the Security Council to undertake independent and impartial monitoring on civilian harm caused by conflict. The mission issues its Protection of Civilian Report every year since 2009. Hamed Halimi, United Nations, Kabul, Afghanistan. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Han Musa. In the headlines, a committee to oversee the election in the Somali election says the vote is going to go on as planned and it will ensure the election is credible. Chadian President Idris Deby warns Africa's Sahel region is at risk of becoming a space for terrorists unless immediate coordinated action is taken. 
and the fate of the suspended executive order that U.S. President Donald Trump signed temporarily banning refugees and the citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries from entering America could be decided by an appeals court. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says government is now prioritizing economic growth. Ramaphosa was addressing the Progressive Professionals Forum in Cape Town last night. Lula Mamatia has more. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says the ANC has come back stronger. He made reference to the two by-elections that the party has won in the Western Cape last week. He likened the ANC to an eagle which undergoes a painful period of disposing of its claws and beak and becomes stronger. He says the ANC has listened to the people. Introspection is now paying fruit. It's paying back because the ANC is becoming more and more reunited, more and more re-energized. It has listened to our people. It has had a very clear message of what our people want. And we have now dislodged the old claws, dislodged the old beak that have become blunt, and we're now re-emerging with new claws, with new determination, with new focus. Ramaphosa says government has prioritized growing the economy, including township, and rural economy. He says places like Vilakazi Street in Soweto can provide these positive spin-offs. The one place where two laureates uh, have homes, have had homes, Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. There's no other place like that in the whole world. What we have said to the comrades in the area is we need to turn this place, Soweto, Vilakazi Street, into one of the biggest tourist attraction possibly in the world because there is an opportunity and a chance. Ramaphosa concluded by responding to a question on what kind of leadership the country must have. You want a guarantee from the leadership that we should not be leaders who will steal? I'm prepared to give that guarantee that we should not steal from our people. We should not be leaders who are defined by stealing from our people, by being corrupt, by being devious, by being liars, by doing funny things against our people. Ramaphosa's talk is part of the build-up in preparation for the People's Assembly to be held on Thursday at the Grand Parade, Lula Mamaja in Cape Town. It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa will launch a Southern Africa Mineral Governance Barometer this evening. Dr. Claude Kabemba, head of the Open Society of Southern Africa's Natural Resources Governance Initiative and director of the Southern Africa Resources Watch, says the research report provides a descriptive analysis and indicators that will show the extent and quality 
possibility of mineral governance within and across 10 countries in southern Africa. He spoke to Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa. Look, the governance of minerals in southern Africa is quite, when you compare countries, there's quite a lot of uh, differences. We've got countries such as South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, which are so well advanced in terms of controlling, regulating, and controlling their mineral resources. But there are other countries which are in the middle, such as Zimbabwe, Zambia, which even though they have quite very good regulation in place, they are still not able to control and capitalize on maximizing benefits from their minerals. Then we have almost uh, another level of country, which will include your DRC, your Lesotho, your Malawi, where they are legislation, but it seems the legislation are not as strong and well-crafted to control and have a strong control over these resources. And then you also see that the level of contribution of the sector to the economy is also minimal. But beyond the regulations, this classification also touches on the capacity of each of these states to monitor the sector. You will see that we have states that have far more capacity than others to monitor the sector and even the level of sanctioning mining companies that do not abide by the regulation and the principles. So we have a very diverse type of governance which reflects the capacity of the different states in the region. And uh, doctor, looking at the research, what could be said about the regulatory framework and state capacity to ensure that activities and mining companies are compatible with efforts to promote inclusive and sustainable development are central to this challenge? Look, I think what the research clearly demonstrates is that even countries that have regulations have got state institutions in place to do mining as it should, it seems like there there are serious gaps which weaken the ability of the mining sector to contribute to a sustainable development, especially contribute to the development of mining communities. One of the areas which comes strongly in this is the negotiation of mining contracts, where we have seen across the board serious weaknesses by state institutions to negotiate contracts that are beneficial for the country. There are different factors that contribute to that. There are internal factors mostly which are contributing to that. One of those is really the level of conflict of interest and the corruption where those who are supposed to negotiate on behalf of the people contracts end up having financial return to negotiate bad deal. Also, we are seeing that most states are not capable to hold companies to account when it comes to issues of environmental corporate responsibilities, which is critical in most of these countries to ensure that especially mining communities benefit to the extraction of mineral resources. But we also have, you know, that in some of these countries, 
like in Lesotho, in Democratic Republic of Congo, in Mozambique, in Zambia, there is a strong space for artisanal mining. When you look at formal mining, where mining companies are involved, and you compare the benefits compared to artisanal mining, the artisanal and small-scale mining does contribute quite significantly to support far more numbers of Africans in Southern Africa than the formal economy, the formal extractive. So even at the level of artisanal mining, we have seen the state inability to legislate it. They've left it as an informal sector, and the consequences of this artisanal mining has been very severe in terms of environmental impact, in terms of uh, human rights abuses. And I think those do not contribute to sustainable development from the mining industry. Talking about the regulatory framework across the four main areas, national and economic linkages, community impact, labor, and the environment. What could be said about this particular situation? Look, when you look at the key, because when you are looking at mining, at the extractive industries today, you're defining it along the African mining vision. And for the African mining vision, mining extractive industry, or the African mining vision is not about mining. It is about development. And when we argue that when we do mining activities, we should be aiming for development. We are looking at areas that are catalysts for development. How can we use extractive industry, mining, to industrialize our countries, to industrialize our region? It's only through value addition and linkages. What the research is demonstrating is that most of our countries are very weak on value addition and linkages. And as long as we are not going to improve on value addition and linkages and support industrialization from our members, it will be very difficult to promote sustainable development. There is also the sector around environments. You will know that mining pollutes. Mining displaces communities. Mining does interfere severely with the environment. That was Dr. Claude Kabemba, head of the Open Society of Southern Africa's Natural Resources Governance Initiative and director of Southern Africa Resources Watch, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. At least 125 million people with disabilities are living in extreme poverty worldwide, according to a United Nations disability rights expert. Catalina Devandas Aguela is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Speaking during a panel discussion on the links between poverty and disability at the UN headquarters in New York, she said that the disabled faced disproportionately high rates of poverty. Devandas Aguila told UN Radio's Lucy Dean there needs to be more understanding of the financial costs associated with disabilities. There's a strong link between disability and poverty, and there is more and more data showing that persons with disabilities, both from developing countries and for developed countries, face poverty and disproportionate rates. Um, Persons with disabilities experience higher costs for just living their regular lives. They have to pay for additional costs such as support, technical devices, uh, transportation, special um, services, healthcare, and there is nothing like, uh, there is not 
enough support from the society to acknowledge those costs and those persons are more likely to fall under poverty. And you have to add to that the lack of opportunities to participate, the lack of opportunities to attend school, the lack of opportunities to get employment. Employment is not accessible. Employment is just not for persons with disabilities and the layers of discrimination that are excluding persons with disabilities. What needs to happen to break down these barriers of exclusion and poverty? We, we need to advance in a change on the way in which we're looking at it. Some of these things are not uh, a matter of resources, but are actually a matter of approaches. How do you approach the reality of persons with disabilities and how do you design systems that are inclusive? It might take um, some effort to work together with organizations of persons with disabilities and persons with disabilities in general to understand what their needs are. But once you do that, you will start designing policies that are inclusive from the start, that will be accessible, that will provide the support that persons with disabilities need, and then that will actually eradicate the barriers that that are impeding persons with disabilities to participate. The right problem or the actual problem that persons with disabilities have is the barriers they face. So, you know, barriers in the society, barriers in the infrastructure and the environment. These are the things that we have to acknowledge and that we have to eradicate. Not, we don't have to look at the person, at the person's impairment, but actually at what are the barriers that are not allowing this person to participate. We need to start building more cohesive and coherent responses at the UN system level to implement the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, but most importantly also to implement the Sustainable Development Goals in a way that is respectful of the rights of persons with disabilities. And I think that the UN system needs to look at how they can make sure their responses are coordinated and that we have a system-wide response to the needs of persons with disabilities, and that is still a big challenge. That was Catalina Devandes Aguela, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, speaking to UN Radio's Lucy Dean. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Hundreds of Nigerians have taken to the streets in Lagos to protest against the government's handling of the country's economic crisis and to demand solutions to the crippling recession. 
Monday's protest came as the government said President Mohamedou Buhari would remain in the UK to complete medical tests. About 500 people gathered at the Lagos National Stadium holding signs saying the unemployed are hungry and angry. In the capital Abuja, dozens of people also turned out and marched to the presidential villa in protest at Buhari's economic policies. Nigerians have been suffering after a fall in oil prices since mid-2014, slashed government revenue, pushing up inflation to more than 20% and weakening the Naira currency. Ghana's debt bailout program with the International Monetary Fund may require tweaking after the new administration revealed that 1.6 million U.S. dollars in expenses were not accounted for by the previous government. The country is in talks with the IMF and will seek to finalize an audit of the undisclosed spending by February 15. Ghana's new administration under President Nanako Fuado says the country's budget deficit for 2016 would be close to double digits after the discovery of the arrears. The IMF is holding talks with Ghana as part of a $918 million three-year credit deal agreed in 2015 after spending a balloon and revenue from commodities such as oil and gold plunged due to a global slump. The South African government says it will gazette its revised mining charter by March this year and the Minerals and Resources Development Act bill by June. They are both important policy guidelines for transformation in the mining industry. Speaking to delegates at the Mining Indaba Conference in Cape Town, Mineral Resources Minister Museven Zizwane said government remained committed to the principles of shared prosperity and responsible investment. We have put efforts in place to ensure that amendments to the principal mining legislation, the Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development Act, are processed and finalized as a matter of agency. This process is well underway and public hearings are taking place towards the finalization of the bill and we expect it to be concluded by 27, June 2017. On the revised mining charter, the regulatory tool governing transformation in the sector the final mining charter will be gazetted by March 2017. U.S. President Donald Trump's America First pledge might threaten Washington's three largest well-being and commerce initiatives in Africa. This, according to U.S. and African consultants and politicians, concern focuses on three programs backed by successive presidents designed to assist African international locations cope with well-being emergencies, develop stronger economies and deepen democratic establishments. The three programs seen as most in danger from the Trump administration are thought of the pillars of Washington's Africa coverage. There are additionally fears that any transfer to refocus assets on America might threaten the anti-AIDS program launched by the administration of George W. Bush. And South Africans will have to fork out up to 14% more for medical aid contributions this year. Most open medical aid schemes will charge their members substantial increases because many more people checked into hospital last year, increasing medical inflation. It has also emerged that medical aid schemes have been detecting millions of dollars in fraudulent transactions, with Discovery nailing down $40 million last year alone. Discovery Health Deputy CEO Ria Noach. It is escalating every year. It's difficult to say whether the fraud is increasing or whether we're just getting much better at detecting it. Uh, We certainly do believe at Discovery that we're picking up the majority of the fraud. 
Uh, one never knows what the iceberg looks like under the sea, but, uh, you know, it is a concern, and we work hard to recover all of those amounts. You know, financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.29 South African rand, 10.34 Botswana Pula at 9.85 Zambian Kwacha. In commodities, gold is at $1,232 and platinum at $1,008 per ounce. The price of praying crude oil is at $55.93 a barrel. That's all for now. Thank you, Amanda. Sports update up next with Figi Lilingwati. In this update, we begin with athletics. Russia will remain suspended from the international athletics, as is unlikely to be reinstated before November. According to the head of the IWAF task force, Rune Anderson, Russia had been presented with a list of demands before it could be allowed to compete again. He told reporters he did not expect Russia to be readmitted before November this year, meaning its athletes will not be able to compete in the World Championships in August. Russia's Athletics Federation, RUSAF, was banned in November 2015 after an independent world anti-doping agency, WADA, probe exposed state-sponsored doping on a massive scale. The suspension was upheld last year, ruling almost all Russian track and field athletes out of the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. And tributes are still pouring in from around the world for the former Springbok captain Jules van Versthuizen. He died yesterday at the age of 45 at his Johannesburg home after a long battle with motor neuron disease. For the first season's memorial service will be held on Friday at the Loftus First First Stadium in Pretoria. Former Springbok coach Haneke Meyer says Van der Ver season's life deserves a celebration. It's very sad, but I think we must celebrate his life. And he gave so much, and especially the last few years of his life. You know, he changed so many people's lives. I've known you since you was a youngster. You know, he was still a student. And uh, the things that stood out for me is his fighting spirit. You know, he's a, he was a true and true and true warrior. And in 2002, nobody gave us a chance to win the, the Curry Cup. Uh, the Bulls was in a... In a you know, in a really bad state, and uh, U.S. was my captain, and he changed that whole team, and he was a guy that fought from the front. On to cricket news. The Proteas will honor and hope to inspire the Cape Town firefighters during their fourth one-day international against Sri Lanka at Newlands today. After a hectic period of the men and women who have been working hard to protect the people of Cape Town. Proteas all-rounder J.P. Dumini says they hope their Protea fire will show their firefighters that they are appreciated. Yes, yeah, so obviously tomorrow's and we we definitely playing this game in remembrance of uh, you know the work that the firefighters have done over the last couple of weeks here in in Cape Town. They've obviously put in some some amazing hours, uh, you know, representing the Western Cape. So we just want to honour them in in the work that they've done. So I think they they'll be here at the game tomorrow and you know watching us. Yeah, I haven't had the best run of form at, at Newlands, uh, so it'd be good to get an opportunity and, and to put in a. A good performance for the, the old faithful. So really looking forward to tomorrow. South Africa lead the series 3-0 and have now turned their attention to a whitewash victory 
But Dumini says they are taking it one game at a time. I think the end result definitely is. Uh, you know, for us is to take it game by game. So the most important game for us and to, to try and win the game. But, you know, we've always had one eye on, on 5 nil, especially coming into this tour. Uh, I think we, we're sort of just focusing on now, and that is to, to obviously beat Sri Lanka. And uh, look, it's, it's a quick turnaround. We've, we leave on Saturday for, for New Zealand, and I think three days later we play a T20, or four days, four days later we play a T20 game. So it's going to be a quick turnaround, so we're going to have to have our, our ducks in a row. The prize for the winners of Sunday night's African Nation Cup is much more than the Continental Crown and a four million US dollars check. There's also the invitation to the Mid-Years Confederations Cup in Russia for Cameroon. Eight countries compete in Russia in June in the now traditional World Cup warm-up event. It lasts for two weeks from the 17th of June to the 2nd of July. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the hour. Rebels threaten to disrupt presidential election in Somalia. Burundi marks anniversary of Unity Charter adoption. And Tanzania intensifies its war on drugs. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magadze and Khumuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Mikasa with a song titled Movie Star.
Africa, my life, 